Hi, I'm Lee Blasser from Proximity Health. Welcome to our third podcast in the Insights to Access series. We're talking today with Dave Terry, the CEO and founder of Archway Health in Boston. Hello, Dave. How are you? Great, Lee. Thanks for uh, including us today. Dave, can you start by telling us a little bit about Archway uh, in terms of who you are and who your customers are and what you do for them? Sure, yeah. So Archway Health is a value-based care company. We're focused on helping really anyone who's taking healthcare risk better understand that risk, uh, underwrite the risk, and manage uh, care for better outcomes and lower costs. Our customers primarily are providers who are taking risk in various value-based care initiatives, mostly Medicare programs, and we're starting to work with more self-insured employers who are responsible for the cost and care of their employees. Can you tell us a little bit about the CMS value-based care initiatives that you've been involved in? In particular, how would you compare oncology care model to other CMS pilots, such as the BPCI or comprehensive primary care? We've been very involved in both the OCM program and the, the BPCI and BPCI advanced programs since they started. Uh, so BPCI got started in 2012, OCM got started in 2015. BPCI is now evolved into the BPCI Advanced Program, which kicked off in 2018. So we've been very involved in those programs uh, over the years at Archway. More recently, we've started to get involved with MSSP ACOs and also working with some folks who are evaluating the Primary Care First Program. You know, I would say there's a number of different distinctions um, across the, the various CMS programs. One distinction would be primary care focus versus specialty focus. So you know, OCM and BPCI are, are obviously more specialty focused, and, and that's really where we got started. And the reason we started in those programs is just in our experience and observations, you know, 75 to 80 percent of healthcare spending happens when people are sick. That's uh, rocket science uh, analysis there. We wanted to focus on really trying to understand what drives really good specialty care and how to help providers identify great specialty care, and then drive improvement toward delivering higher quality care at, at lower cost. And so when you look at BPCI and OCM, obviously very specialty focused. And I think there's a lot of similarities between those programs in that their their episodes defined based on time. They include most of the cost of care during the course of the episode. One thing that distinguishes OCM is it includes drugs, where BPCI does not include drugs. Big distinction between BPCI and OCM is up until recently, OCM was upside only, and BPCI has been significant up and downside since, since the beginning back in 2012. And in another distinction is OCM included a, a sizable PNPM payment to, to fund infrastructure and care improvements where BPCI did not have uh, any type of PNPM payment. You know, CPC Plus is really kind of a, a modified medically home program that's focused on primary care physicians and attributing lives to primary care doctors. That's more of a population health type of model, which we think is important. But we also think it's really important to make sure that the specialty care and specialty episodes are being managed proactively, like what the OCM and BPCI programs, uh, what those models create. Okay, thank you. Can you tell me how you're supporting your clients in the OCM pilot? What kinds of provider groups are you supporting and you know, what are you doing for them? We, at this point, have about 25 customers we're working with in OCM. I would say it's roughly two-thirds of those are physician groups, you know, independent physician organizations, oncology practices, basically, some small and some very large. 
And then the other third would be, you know, integrated delivery networks or health, you know, cancer departments within health systems. We basically have two sets of services that we provide to participants in the OCM program. The, our original product is essentially analytic services, analytic tools and some support services for providers who are participating in that program. And so, you know, going back to 2015 when the program originally started, we built a SaaS analytics as a service platform that was designed to really help answer three questions. How are you doing in the program? So what does your performance look like versus your price? And are you earning performance-based payment, we're on track to earn performance-based payment or not? And also, how are you doing against quality metrics, hospitalizations, utilization, hospice use? And that's harder than it sounds because the prices are complicated. The prices are moving target based on new claims that come in. And so we build a platform to try to anticipate what those prices were going to be for a particular patient and then track what an individual provider's performance is as they care for that patient and get more claims. First question, how are you doing? Second question, why are you doing that way? So what's driving your spending? Uh, how much are you spending on drugs? What is that spending for first-line, second-line therapy or supportive therapy? What is your, how much are you spending on hospitalizations? How does your hospitalization rate vary by physician or cancer type or hospital in your community? What does your post-acute utilization look like, ER utilization, your hospice use? all those types of things. And the third question is, what can you do about it? And that really gets to benchmarking. So to look at on a health risk adjusted basis by type of cancer, what is your hospitalization rate for your patients with breast cancer or lung cancer? Uh, what is What different drugs are you using compared to your, your peers in the program? What does your hospice patterns look like? Those types of things to try to provide information for where there might be opportunity for changes in practice patterns or improvement in the process. And so we've been doing that, as I mentioned, for, for a number of years now. We augment the, the analytics with services where we're, we're talking to the practice, the provider organization, at least once a month about what we're seeing in the data and where, where there might be opportunities for, for improvement. The second service we offer, and this is much newer, is stop-loss uh, coverage for providers who are an OCM who are decided to take two-sided risk. The goal there really is, you know, many of these providers who have participated in the upside-only component wanted to move forward in a two-sided risk either because they had to to continue in the program or there's more upside if you take downside and they wanted to access that, that additional upside. But, you know, folks are concerned about the risk. And so essentially a provider will say, look, I never want to write a check of more than a million dollars or half a million dollars or whatever the right number is. We can ingest your data and provide you a quote for premium that will match your desired deductible level. Okay. So this is how you're facilitating their staying in the OCM under the two-sided risk. You're basically underwriting their losses. We're providing protection against losses, you know, beyond what the practice would be comfortable taking on their own. And there are really, I think, two components of that. So one would be the underwriting piece. So because we've been in these programs for so long and we have so much data and we understand what the probability of gain or loss are for a particular provider and then what they need to do to you know, increase the chances of gain and reduce the chances of loss, I think we're differentiated in the market because we're underwriting at a very granular level based on their understanding of the program and what drives success. And then the second piece would be engaging with practices and health systems to help them improve their medical loss ratios and improve their ability to achieve the quality metrics and reduce their total cost of care by, you know, working with practices to think about 
what really moves the needle on reducing costs and improving the, improving the process. So you, you talk about the practices and you've still got 25 provider organizations that you're working with now. We're now in three or four years down the road in OCM. What characteristics or factors have you seen that separate providers who are succeeding in value-based care from those who are not succeeding? No, it's a great question, Lee, and we, you and I have talked about this a lot over the years. Turns out, in our experience, culture and leadership and buy-in really matter. Having strong physician leadership and administrative leadership who are participating in these programs. What distinguishes the one that we, the ones that we work with that have been successful, and we've had some that have been very successful, is they're really bought into value-based care. And it's consistent up and down their organization. They're looking at the data. They're communicating to their teams that this is really important. They're hiring strong administrative staff to support the program. We've had some practices who've actually let oncologists go who don't buy in. Just a commitment to value-based care as a key strategic imperative and aspect of their organization is, is probably the biggest factor. Then I would say paying attention to the data and really understanding how you're performing overall, how individual physicians in your practice are performing, which hospitals are, are collaborative and other downstream partners are collaborative in helping improve. And I would say an early indicator of success is how well you're doing on the quality metrics, right? So the three quality metrics in OCM are hospitalization rates, ER utilization, and hospice use. You know, those are three things that are relatively easy to at least start looking at and having an impact on. You know, we've seen people really improve in those areas by, you know, looking at the data, engaging with their teams, engaging with their provider partners in their communities. And then there seems to be sort of a residual effect. So once the teams start really focusing on those things, they start getting interested in looking at different opportunities to think about protocols and, and different drugs they might be using, either first-line therapies or supportive therapies, and understanding what the total cost of those drugs are, what the impact is in terms of recovery, as well as utilization of various services. But a great indicator of success early on is really thinking about how we're going to move the needle on some of these quality metrics, which also you know, clearly have an impact on cost. Once we get beyond the quality metrics around hospitalization and have you seen use of tight formularies or care pathways or, you know, strategies of that type being used among your clients? Yes. I mean, in OCM, there's emphasis on being on protocol. I would say just generally, when we found this in OCM and BPCI and any type of episodic program that we've been involved with, the oncologists and the practice administrators, before they start these programs, have no idea where the money goes and what drives the cost of care even what drives different types of outcomes. great part about these programs, whether it's upside only or real risk, is it provides a tremendous amount of data. You know, I don't think many of the practices we work with knew that the average cost to Medicare for a patient, Medicare patient with breast cancer over a six-month period is about $40,000 with you know 30% variation around the mean. And where does that $40,000 go in terms of first, second-line therapies, supportive therapies, hospitalizations, post-acute care, and sort of just seeing, you know, where the dollars go and what the variability looks like starts to create, you know, more interest in, in understanding what alternatives might be. That certainly has, in some practices, not all practices, but, but caused people to think more about what protocols are on, what drugs they're using, are there biosimilars that they might be able to, to use in certain circumstances. It absolutely has shined a spotlight on that. We have seen this as 
a way to start at least spurring the interest in, in thinking about alternatives when they might be available. When we think about the role of cancer drugs in the OCM episodes, is there a typical share of total cost that the drugs might account for? As you can imagine, it's quite variable, and it's roughly half the cost of care for a patient with cancer is drugs. And that's a mix of, again, first, second line therapies, supportive therapies. And in some cases, it could be well more than half for different types of cancer when different, different drugs are, are involved. And if 50% or more of the cost is drugs, you know, certainly there's opportunity in, in other areas like hospitalizations and post-acute care and end-of-life care. At some point, you have to start looking at the drugs. And as you know, there are many, many protocols for individual cancer types we have seen groups start looking critically at how to think about that. I would say one of the top performing groups that we've worked with, and I think one of the top performing groups in the program, you know, they've got a very good dynamic in from, from a practice perspective. Their CEO has tremendous knowledge of, you know, how the, what the drug options are. Their CMO is very passionate about value-based care and, and, and also obviously in tune with, with the drugs. And they've engaged a team of folks to look at the data and, and provide them with information. They use our data, but they've, they've hired someone on their team who's looking at the data constantly and are trying to identify where there may be opportunities. They've also been very proactive in looking at different protocols and different ways to think about care for different types of patients. You know, when it's working really well, folks are looking at all aspects of the care and the spend in a very proactive way. Okay. Have there been any particular cancer drugs that your, your winners in particular are focusing on? I can't get to specific drugs, to be honest, but I would say, you know, certainly there seem to be opportunities in this in the area of supportive therapies. And there's some very high cost supportive therapy drugs that folks have seemed to be taking a, a more critical look at. And then anywhere where there'd be biosimilars would be another area where folks would be looking looking at critically. Okay. So US oncology was pretty clear that they are being much more thoughtful about use of Nulasta in particular and also looking for opportunities to switch to using biosimilars wherever possible for MABs. Nulast is a drug that we have also had some of our providers get look at much more critically. Does managing oral cancer drugs present a different challenge than managing the, the physician-administered cancer drugs within your groups? Yeah, it does. It's just harder to track the oral therapies than the infusion, obviously. So practices sometimes don't know what drugs or orals their patients may be on or whether they're compliant, just finding it just harder to and track what's really going on with, with orals, whereas you know, the intrusions are often happening in their facilities, and so they can track those more, more closely. We're getting better at that. We're trying to get more real-time with interacting with patients with what drugs are on. Medicare is getting better at providing more you know, closer to real-time claims information that we're starting to access with some of the providers we're working with. It is harder to track what's going on with orals than, than infusion, but we're, we're, we're trying to find ways to get better at that. How is CMS providing you closer to real time? I know that the overall data lag is a year between close of the claim and then before it's reported. I don't think it's that bad. It's over a year for reconciliation. We get new data in OCM. This is another big difference between OCM and BPCI and most ACOs. In OCM, we get data quarterly. If a patient drops a claim at the end of a quarter, we'll get data close to the beginning of the next quarter. We would have that patient's data relative that that claim from that particular patient relatively quickly. Someone who dropped a claim at the beginning of the quarter, now we're looking at three, around three months of, of lag. So, you know, it's not a year, but it's, it's multiple months, which is a challenge and much worse than BPCI and, and most ACOs. One of the good things about OCF is they are talking about providing monthly claims data 
rather than quarterly. Still not perfect, but better. Um, There's also pilots out there where they're making more real-time claims data available, and we're, we're we're piloting that with a few of our practices. And then BPCI program, we built this uh, a software tool called CareLink, which is designed to track patient progress over the course of an episode. We're, we're starting to use that with some of our OCM customers as well. And does CareLink actually track claims or EMR data, or what's that tracking? Interacting directly with patients via text and phone calls and robocalls to get information from the patient about what's going on. We have tapped into patient ping. Experian also has a patient ping-like product where we get alerts when a patient ends up at an ER or a hospital. So it's trying to be very resourceful in how it pulls information from providers and patients directly about what's going on with their care to identify patients who are at risk for some type of event or being off track from their care plan or that type of thing. Essentially, you've got a credit reporting bureau that tracks financial transactions that can ping the fact that the patient just got admitted to a care unit of some kind? Yeah, there's a couple companies in this business, those are two of them, that are linking into EMR and admission discharge systems. If you give a roster to patient ping, they're tapped into a hospital ER, Medicare number or social security number shows up, then a ping gets sent to whoever is to sign up to receive that ping that, you know, Mrs. Smith is in the ER now or Mrs. Smith has just been admitted to hospital or even in some cases admitted to a, a nursing facility. They're kind of going market by market, but patient ping has good coverage in Boston, they've got good coverage in Dallas, Experian has coverage in other, other parts of the country. So we've been chapter with both of those networks. Okay, great. So let's talk about view forward. To begin with, let's talk about oncology care first model. What lessons do you see CMS drawing from OCM that will impact OCFM design? That's a great question. I mean, I would say in general, we've been very impressed with CMMI. I mean, certainly a lot of things they've done aren't perfect, but I think it's relatively undisputed that they're sort of the most sophisticated and most implementation-oriented healthcare or payment reform think tank out there. And they put a lot of programs out there. And you can see their learning in every program that they launch, right? We were a BPCI classic. Didn't feel like it at the time, but in retrospect, that was a pretty simple model, pretty simple pricing structure. And then they came out with CJR. That was a little bit more sophisticated. And then they came out with the cardiology program, which was more sophisticated than that. They came out with OCM, which was certainly a lot more sophisticated than the BPCI program. And then they came out with BPCI Advanced, which is more sophisticated than OCM. And now we're seeing, you know, what they're talking about with OCF building on all those things, certainly building on what, we're, what we've seen from OCM and what we've seen in BPCI Advanced. You know, and frankly, I think a flaw in the OCM model is there's one pricing model, one regression model for all cancers. What we're seeing in OCF is there's going to be cancer-specific pricing and the, the covariates in the regression model are specific to individual types of cancer. That's much more similar to BPCI Advanced where there is a individual pricing model for each bundle and bundle type of BPCI bands, that's what they'll have in, in OCF. We're also seeing better methodology for how they're using the HCC scores. In BPCI advanced, they're weighting different comorbidities, different HCC scores that patients would have, and that's what they're going to have in OCF. In OCM, the, the price basically would vary depending on how many comorbidities you have. Now it's going to be those comorbidities are going to be weighted. So, you know, CHF might be weighted higher than, you know, some other less costly chronic chronic condition. So we think that's a better a better way to, to 
the, the crisis. They're moving toward two, two-sided risk. I think the data is pretty clear. There's much more improvement and more improvement in process, improvement in outcomes, reduction in cost when there's two-sided risk and then when it's upside only. And so, you know, ultimately, they're going to push everyone who participates in a two-sided risk program, which, which in the end we think is we think is better. And we think the, the granularity of the pricing they have in this program will be better than, than what it was in OCM. You mentioned this already, but more monthly data versus quarterly data, that's a really big deal in terms of really understanding how you're performing and tracking your, your opportunities for improvement. Multiple, so they're moving to two-side risk. They also will have multiple risk tracks, so we give a little bit of flexibility in kind of how much risk folks want to take. I think before in the program. So those are some of the things that are different in OCF and OCM, and we think those are positive. Now, there was some dispute about whether or not cancer drug was cost were going to be included in OCFM. I mean, everything we're hearing so far is that they will be included. I don't know the exact details, but I think they're they're changing a bit the way they're going to structure the risk or the credit for using novel therapies. I think that might help a little bit. You know, our view is it's very hard, I mean, given that the drugs are... 50%, in some cases, significantly more than 50% of the cost of an episode. It's hard to think about a meaningful program that wouldn't include drugs. Thanks. So from where you stand now and your involvement in all these different programs, where do you see value-based care going in, say, this year, next year, and maybe 2022? You said towards risk, for instance, but is that going to be a light switch, or do you see this being a gradual process? I mean, obviously, we think about this a lot. Lee, you and I have been doing this work for a long time. I think we first met almost 30 years ago. You know, back then, we thought that, you know, the market was moving away from people service toward risk pretty rapidly. And here we are in 2020, and it's still pretty modest. However, you know, what CMS has said and was announced at the LAN, the leadership of CMS has, has said this over the last year, is their stated goal is to have 100% of providers in a meaningful downside risk arrangement by 2025. Right now, we're at about 12, 12 to 13%. That's you know over a trillion dollars of risk shifting from the government onto providers over the next five years. And you know one of the drivers, we just can't afford it anymore, right? I talked to some of the leadership at Health and Human Services late last year about this particular topic, and his point was we really have no choice. If you look at the deficit and the fact that healthcare is driving the deficit up more than anything else on the cost side, they have no choice but to think differently about how the government pays for healthcare. One strategy they have to push people toward Medicare Advantage, and the other strategy they have is push patients and to manage programs through putting the providers at risk. That's what we're responding to. When I first heard the folks at CMI say this, and my comment was, you've got a lot of work to do because there aren't very many programs that are true alternative payment models. This was in the fall of 2018, so almost a year and a half ago now. And since then, they've done a lot of work. They've announced about a dozen different programs, you know, OCFM, Primary Care First, direct contracting, geographic contracting, the BPCI advanced program, pushed OCM into two-sided risk, and they've expanded CJR. They're talking about another cardiology program. So just in the last year, they've announced over a dozen different programs that have meaningful risk in them. And even if they don't get to 100% of providers of meaningful risk by 2025, even if they get halfway there, that's hundreds of billions of dollars of risk shifting from the government to providers. And to your point earlier, with MACRA, Providers can stay in MIPS, which is a long-term revenue negative proposition when you when you look at the rate increases relative to inflation, 
or they can move into advanced payment models. And so combined with the incentives for providers to do that and the need for the government to think about how to you know, think about how to manage their, their, their long-term liability, we think this is moving in this direction, certainly over the next five years, and we think relatively rapidly in that, in that time frame. So this is all about CMS, but obviously private payers have a stake in this too. Do any of the private payers' initiatives matter, or are they just sort of following along behind CMS's path? It's a really good question to which I, I wish I had a better answer. <laughs> you know, over the years, we've spent a fair amount of time with a variety of commercial payers, sort of, you know, regional blues plans and uh, regional nonprofits, as well as big national for-profit health plans. They're still moving quite slowly based on our observations. There's no CMS equivalent that's sort of driving this. The great part about CMS, it's a huge part of you know, healthcare spend. And when they create a program, it's got scale, even though even if it's voluntary, it's got some scale right off the bat. None of the commercial plans that I can point to are, you know, get that type of scale very quickly in their value-based initiatives that they're they're pursuing. Now there's there's certainly pockets of, of plans that are, are doing more than others. Blue Cross New Jersey is doing a lot. The folks in North and South Carolina are doing a fair amount. I was in a meeting with Michigan recently, is doing a bunch. United is kind of still trying to figure out what they want to do. We're seeing more experimentation in the Medicare Advantage side, for sure. New entrants like Devoted and, and others in, in the Medicare Advantage space, which are doing some interesting things. But all in all, I would say the commercial market is relatively slow. And, uh, and that's really one of the reasons why we're focused on the self-insured employer market more than on the commercial payer market. Okay. So the employers are more likely to move on this than, or at least have a higher incentive to move on it than the commercial payers do? You know, I've never, I'm not a payer person. I've been, my, my, my career's been on the provider side, but, you know, I've obviously called on a lot of payers and talked to a lot of payers. I think incentives is one of the issues. It's not clear to me exactly why commercial plans don't have the incentive to do more of this. You know, at the end of the day, employers and their employees are bearing the cost in the commercial market. Ultimately, they have the biggest incentive to change how they're, how they're paying for this. And they have the long-term liability. You know, their employees stay with them longer than people stay with health plans. And at some point, the cost just to be too much. The other thing I would say is, as you know, in our industry, there's all kinds of alignment issues and uh, misaligned incentives between payers and providers and, and the whole kind of ecosystem of how healthcare is, is purchased. Employers don't really have that. All they know is they're paying a lot and the costs keep going up and the value is not what they're used to for other products and services they pay for. So and we're early in the self-insured employer market, so that's not an easy market either, but, but we just see that there's more alignment of incentives and need in that market than there is in the, in the payer market. Great. Well, thanks very much for joining us today. I think this has been very helpful for our clients, and um, I guess that will close it for today. Great. Well, thanks, Lee. It's great to, great to chat, and thanks again for including us. Let me take a moment to review three key takeaways from this podcast. First, value-based care is still a work in progress. This is clearly going to drive the next wave of healthcare reform, but this will be a wave that builds slowly. Downside financial risk will be a key feature of many value-based care arrangements. Secondly, CMS, in particular Medicare, is the payer that matters in this case. The government wants to have 100% of providers in meaningful downside risk by 2025. Right now, we're at around 12 to 13%, so there's lots of work to be done. This also means that in the next five or so years, the government plans to shift 
anywhere from hundreds of billions of dollars to a trillion dollars of financial risk to providers. Finally, successful providers are those who will be organizations that commit fully to value-based care. Their culture will be built around value-based care and the physicians will seek to deliver the most cost-effective, highest quality care possible. They will use data to help them understand cost drivers and find ways to at least restrict growth in those drivers. This will inevitably lead to rising price sensitivity for cancer drugs and lead providers to think hard about their prescribing decisions and the financial implications of selecting one alternative over another. Thank you for joining us. Please check back later this quarter when we release the fourth podcast in our series, Insights to Access.